You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of June 29th, 2023. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Woman searches for justice after her mother was killed in Lakewood Hit and Run by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Drew Hill Culvert Project is completed by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Artist Channel Creative Spark at 5th Annual Arts Week Golden by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Goldenites fighting to keep food trucks at GCB Goosetown Station by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. And $2 million bond set for teens charged in rock-throwing spree by Olivia Prinzel, Colorado Sun, for the Arvada Press, and following up with various articles. Woman searches for justice after her mother was killed in Lakewood Hit and Run by Joe Davis. Angela Selvage was walking in Lakewood the night of May 28th when she was hit by a vehicle and left for dead. A second car came through and hit her, said Angela's daughter, Samantha Selvage. They stopped me and called for help. My mom died at the hospital not long after that. According to the Lakewood Police notice about the events, Angela was walking down West 6th Street, Frontage Road, and was hit near J Street. Police are still looking for information about the incidents, and so is Samantha. Samantha, a resident of Arizona, has made Liquid her home, her temporary home, as she works to find out who hit her mother. It's falling on my shoulders to try to bring my mom justice and my family closure, and it's fine. I accept that responsibility, but it's really hard, she said. She's struggling to pay out of pocket for her stay and for laying her mother to rest. Samantha's family is helping, however. The costs are rising. They started to a crowdfund to help with the costs. You can find more information on the crowdfund at gofundme.me at gofund.me slash fd60 c seven a nine. Samantha wants to know wants people to know that her mother was a good person who made an impression everywhere she went. As she canvasses the neighborhood near 6th and J, Samantha has met people who remember her mother. I've come into town. I've only been here a week. There are so many people who say, oh, I knew your mom. I, I think I knew your mom. I'm so sorry. So many people knew her and knew that she was a positive, uplifting person and so into her faith, Samantha said. She just affected everyone in a positive way. Angela was unhoused and going through a difficult time in her life, but she was still a good person and a good mom, Samantha said. She was still a mom of five children. She was a loving person. She was a person, a human being, and she did not deserve this, Samantha said. It doesn't matter if you're homeless. The point is, is that somebody took a human being's life in a disgusting manner and then left her there to die, to get run over again. Nobody deserves that. 
And that shouldn't happen to anybody. So far, Samantha has a time window to go on and not much else. We're looking for a time span that night, May 28th. It was the night before Memorial Day, Monday, she said. For anyone who may still have a ring camera or other footage, Samantha would like them to check between 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. She and her father are still in Lakewood and will be knocking on doors asking anyone for any information, including camera footage. We're still going to be canvassing the area, Samantha said. We're looking for any vehicle that we can find of a vehicle either coming into the area or going on to 6th Avenue around the time Angela was hit and then exiting. We believe that the person who did it did enter and exit through the neighborhood. So we'll see. But that's why we're looking for right now, mainly as footage, camera footage, end quote. She clarified that she is looking for, quote, just any vehicle that goes, including bikes. The police haven't pinpointed the exact vehicle yet, but we're just trying to put together the pieces and see what we can find. She will be in that area near 6th and J. If you don't see her, expect to see the signs she and the family made scattered throughout the area. The family made 30 signs using their own materials, including traffic cones, which Samantha brought with her from her construction job in Arizona. Samantha doesn't plan to go home until the person who hit her mother is found. I feel like I can't leave the state of Colorado and go back to my life without doing this, without bringing that closure to my family and getting my mom justice, she said. She urges anyone with any information to contact the Lakewood police. Metro Denver Crime Stoppers is offering a $2,000 reward for information. You can fill out an online form at p3tips.com slash tip form or call 720-913-7867. You can remain anonymous. Please refer to Lakewood PD case LK23. Dash zero one five four zero six. Drew Hill Culvert Project is completed by Joe Davis. The Jefferson County Transportation and Engineering Department recently announced that the Drew Hill Road Culvert Project has been completed. Drew Hill Road is described as an access point to parks and open spaces in Jefferson County. Destinations include Golden Gate Canyon State Park. The project was completed with special government funding and actually came in under budget. The budgeted $437,434 project is one of many funded by a $113 million ARPA, or American Rescue Plan Act, grant to Jefferson County. The Drew Hill Culvert was one of the more dire projects, according to Jefferson County Public Affairs. The issue was described as a deteriorated corrugated pipe that would have failed if left un uncorrected. A sinkhole had already begun to form, forcing the county to close half the road. Crews installed steel plates as a temporary safety measure. The swift work of our Jeffco team and lead contractor literally saved this road and bridges collapse into a creek 
and potentially saved severe structural damage and possible harm to residents and visitors who use this area every day, said Jefferson County Development and Transportation Director Abel Montoya. The project took two months and ultimately cost $401,625. Where did the $35,799 savings come from? According to Evan Brown, civil engineer supervisor for Jeffco Transportation and Engineering, the savings came from having, quote, minimal change orders or bid overruns during construction. He added that the roadway resurfacing portion of the project was completed in-house by Jeffco Road and Bridge. Road and Bridge staff wanted to resurface other damaged portions of Drew Hill Road nearby to the project site. This results in cost savings since Road and Bridge had material on hand and could complete the resurfacing for a cheaper unit price than the contractor. According to Jeffco Public Affairs, the repairs include replacing the existing metal pipe with a reinforced concrete box culvert, adding ready rock wing walls that increase the safety of the road's shoulders, and installing riprap, loose stone foundation areas on the upstream and downstream sides for erosion protection. For more information on other ARPA projects in Jeffco, check out Jefferson County ARPA page. $2 million bond set for teens charged in rock-throwing spree by Olivia Prinzel, the Colorado Sun. A judge set a $2 million cash-only bond Wednesday for each of the three teens charged with first-degree murder in a rock-throwing spree that killed 20-year-old Alexa Bartel and injured several others. Joseph Koenig, Nicholas Mitch, Carol Chick, and Zachary Quack, all 18, must also surrender their passports and driver's license, comply with protection orders against the victims in the case, are prohibited from drinking alcohol, and must be monitored by GPS. First Judicial District Court Judge Christopher Zinasek said during a hearing Wednesday morning in Jefferson County. Zinasek denied a request to set bond at $10 million by the prosecution, who argued that the three young men's accusations was, quote, indiscriminate murder, and that their release from jail would put the community at risk. There's no amount that will alleviate the pain that the victims are feeling and have expressed here, and I am sorry for your loss. And there's no amount that adequately will symbolize the importance of that individual to this community, Zinasek said. So that's not what the court is seeking to do here. This is a different task before the court that is to set bond appropriately as the court must do with regard to each of these individuals before the court. All three men have been held in jail without bond since they were arrested in their respective Arvada homes last late April. They are suspected of throwing large rocks at a string of cars shortly after 10 p.m. on April 19th in Westminster. That included an attack in which they hurled a cannonball-sized rock at another woman driving along Colorado 93, prosecutor said in court Wednesday morning. After the rock struck the driver's side window, glass shattered into her eyes, injured her head and neck, ripped a hole through her car's leather seat, and broke the rear window of the car. 
the woman slammed on her brakes in the middle of the highway. Bartel was the last person struck. Prosecutors said Koenig was driving 80 miles per hour on Indiana Street when the teens launched the rock at Bartel's yellow Chevy Spark as she was talking on the phone with a friend. The rock smashed through her front windshield and struck her in the head. Alexa Bartel's family pleaded for the judge not to grant bond. Kelly Bartel, Alexa's mother, stood at the dais recounting the terrifying five-minute drive to the field where Alexa's body was found next to her car, which had run off the road and into a field after the rock flew through her windshield and hit her only child in the head. I wake up every day reliving this nightmare over and over. I will never be able to hug my baby, to hold her, to laugh with her, and to watch her live her life with all the experiences that she will never be able to have. That was taken from me by these three individuals who chose to kill my daughter by throwing a rock through her windshield. Kelly Bartell said, her voice quavering. Greg Bartell, Lex's father, told the judge several of his family members are afraid to drive, fearing something similar could happen to them. He called the defendants a danger to the community. Our fear as a family is with the release of these gentlemen that may happen to another innocent individual. While these men are contemplating the thought of freedom, our family is plagued with the forever loss of our loved one, said Greg Bartell, who attended the hearing virtually. When setting bond and weighing flight risk, Zinesek considered the three teens' age, lack of criminal histories, and family support. Defense attorneys for the three men argued that the bond be set much lower, arguing that they are not at flight risk and that their families will help bring them to court for future hearings. Koenig, Carol Chick, and Quack each face 13 charges, which include one, include one count of first-degree murder with extreme indifference. Six counts of attempted first-degree murder, three counts of second-degree assaults, and three counts of attempted second-degree assault, court documents show. The extreme indifference charges allege the men knowingly created a grave risk of death without caring who was injured or killed, resulting in Bartell's death. An attorney for Carol Chick said Wednesday, quote, potentially more serious charges could be filed. During interviews with police following their arrest, Carol Chick and Quack each accused the other of throwing the rock that killed Bartell. Koenig refused to be interviewed by police. After the rock smashed through Bartel's window and killed her, the men returned to the crash sites to take a picture of the carto served as a memento, they told investigators. Police say the men hit six other cars and two other drivers were injured. A preliminary hearing was rescheduled for September 8th. This story, via the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver that covers the state. For more, visit coloradosun.com. The Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, which owns Colorado Community Media. Artist Channel Creative Spark at 5th Annual Arts Week Golden by Corinne Westerman. 
For artists, there's no better way to swing into summer than showcasing at Foothill, Foothill's Art Center's annual Arts Week Golden. The fifth annual event drew more than 100 artists to Golden June 19th through the 25th for several community events, including for June 24th through the 25th Arts Festival downtown. Organizers were excited to welcome about 30 new artists this year and host returning ones like those from Denver's Circus Foundry. The aerialists, jugglers, and acrobats performed between early evening rainstorms June 21st as hundreds of Goldenites and visitors watched on with food and beverage in hand. Circus Foundry has performed at Arts Week all five years, hosting its first three shows in the FAC Courtyard. But last year, organizers moved the performance to the Golden Mill to draw more attendees, raise funds for FAC, and host more Arts Week events throughout the city. Executive Director Hassan Najjar described how, because both the organization's campuses are under construction, the Foothills Arts Center was leaning more on its community partners this year. Golden City Brewery hosted a June 19th sketch and paint event with local artist Janet Nunn. The Golden Beer Talks featured painter Jesse Crock at its June 20th event. And the Golden Civic Foundation's annual Summer Jam, June 22nd, was scheduled to host a pottery demonstration. While the logistics looked a little different this year, Najjar emphasized how the goal of Arts Week remained. We want to elevate elevate the arts in Golden, he said. This gets people thinking about it for a solid week. Eric Cochuli, FAC's curator for Arts Week, was excited to see a nice blend of new and returning artists, including the Circus Foundry performers. Cochuli said hosting them at the Golden Mill was the perfect way to, quote, Get lots of eyes on the performance. Anthony Cummings, Circus Foundry's co-founder, said he and the other eight co-founder, other eight performers were excited to provide free entertainment for Golden Knights and other guests, saying Arts Week crowds are always very welcoming and enthusiastic. Because circuses and circus-style acts historically haven't been accessible to everyone, Cummings encouraged anyone interested in learning to give it a try. He and his performers emphasized how people of all ages, skill levels, and backgrounds can learn. Kyle Shirk, who's been studying Chinese pole acrobats for two and a half years, described how he started out as a rock climber. After 15 years doing the sport, he said he learned he wanted to try something different, and learning vertical acrobats was easier than he'd expected. Most of his fellow Circus Foundry students have gymnastics and or dance backgrounds, so performing seems more natural for them. Shirks performed at student showcases and this summer's Parker Days, and said it's a good opportunity for him to practice his focus while he's in the proverbial spotlights. Meanwhile, Natasha Smith, Natasha Smith levied her history in dance, gymnastics, and martial arts into multiple circus disciplines. She performed at last year's Arts Week. 
show at the Golden Mill. This year, she returned with a sling performance, winding and spinning down more than 20 feet in the air. I've never done something quite like it before, she said of performing at the Golden Mill. Smith described how she appreciates the combination of athletics and creativity that's inherent to all performing arts, but especially circus disciplines. She also loves channeling that creative spark that drives all artists. The thought of taking something from one's imagination and bringing it to life for others to enjoy. Goldenites fighting to keep food trucks at GCB. Goosetown Station, Corinne Westerman. Golden City Brewery, Goosetown Station, their food truck vendors and customers are asking City Council to allow them to keep food trucks in their locations. A change.org petition for GCB, which had 650 signatures as of June 26th, describes how this hurts the brewery and the food trucks it works with. One food truck owner said she's lost significant revenue since food trucks were disallowed at GCB earlier this summer. The business owners argued that food trucks are an important part of the experience, and disallowing them will diminish the culture they've built. It also creates an unfair system where other golden businesses are allowed to have food trucks and use public right-of-way, but their businesses aren't. Goosetown station owner Cheryl Jordan argued. However, city officials explained that food trucks aren't allowed in public right-of-way, especially in residential areas. Mobile vendors, food trucks included, are only allowed on private commercial properties, such as businesses, parking lots, and driveways. There are exceptions for special events like Buffalo Bill Days and the Golden Farmer's Market, which require a separate permit. While the law was in place, Golden officials said they didn't realize it was being enforced until more than a year ago and gave GCB a temporary license to keep its food trucks until June 1st. GCB's Tamara Monroe described how in 2013, city code enforcement officers gave permission for the brewery to host food trucks in its parking lot, along with detailed instructions on where and how they should be situated. Thus, the proprietors were surprised when the city had to give GCB the temporary license last year. Monroe also emphasized that the brewery has tried to work with the city regarding these restrictions since 2020, discussing a curb cut and other measures that would keep the food trucks on the property. However, many of these aren't viable because of physical impacts to the historical structures on GCB's property and or aesthetic impacts on the 12th Street Historic District, Monroe said. Meanwhile, Jordan told the city councilors at their June 20 meeting how she was allowed to have food trucks at Goosetown Station through the first parts of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, more recently she said city staff told her they were no longer allowed and short of changing the law, there was nothing they could do. She said the food trucks at Goosetown Station and GCP don't block any pedestrian or vehicle traffic, and she believed it was unfair that other golden businesses are allowed to operate in the public right-of-way, like those participating in the city's downtown outdoor dining program. 
We're just trying to have a great environment for our customers, Jordan continued. City Council's comments. During the June 20th meeting, Mayor Laura Laura Weinberg described how she and her fellow councilors had received several emails about the issue. She clarified the city's current law, saying city councils discussed it multiple times over the last three years. City council decided that the current law was sufficient for the city and not wanting to open up the opportunity for vendors to use public space for mobile vending, she continued. She reiterated that no mobile vending is allowed in public right-of-way, which includes city sidewalks, streets, parking lanes, and parking lots. She also clarified how the city's outdoor dining program doesn't allow participating businesses to host food trucks or retail. It's only for outdoor dining. Councilor Don Cameron pointed out that, theoretically, Goosetown or GCB could apply for special events, permits to host food trucks, such as weekend beer and food tasting events. This is the same system Golden Farmers Market uses every Saturday in the summer to host its mobile vendors, he said. Regarding Jordan's comments about this creating an unfair system against certain businesses, Councillor J.J. Trout said she and her colleagues must think about fairness on a citywide scale. If the law wants to change the law, if the city wants to change the law, Councillor Rob Reed said it'll need a compelling reason to do so, and it'll have to be a very robust public input process with impacted residents and brick and mortar businesses. If we're going to address a major policy like this, we're going to do it through appropriate public outreach and give everybody their chance to respond, Reed said. It's not what we're trying to ignore anybody. We're just trying to treat everybody with the same dignity and fairness. The business's response. In the days following the June 20th meeting, both GCP and Goosetown have reiterated their thoughts on social media, saying that they believe the city is treating them unfairly. They believe the food trucks don't negatively impact Golden's brick-and-mortar businesses or disrupt traffic in their respective areas. GCB also stated on its Facebook page how it supported a diverse range of food trucks, including women-run businesses, LGBTQ-led businesses, ones operated by Golden residents, owners of color, and more. We are saddened that the city is preventing us from supporting these small local businesses, the brewery continued. But we will continue to support and bring cultural diversity to our neighborhood. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, A massive, affordable housing project just broke ground in Northeast Park Hill. Neighbors say the community needs more than homes, by Kyle Harris. And, Missing indigenous woman Christine Tail was found safely after her partner faced delays in reaching law enforcement, by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Killer of fabulous Boogie Knots singer Jennifer Galvin will be sentenced today by Benito L. Kelty. And RTD is free in July and August. Here's what you need to know by Katie Cheshire.
I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. A massive affordable housing project just broke ground in Northeast Park Hill. Neighbors say the community needs more than homes by Kyle Harris. For weeks, bulldozers have been digging up the old Metro taxi lot at 38th Avenue and Forest Street in Northeast Park Hill. They're making way for Denver's largest income-restricted housing project since outgoing Mayor Michael Hancock formed the Department of Housing Stability, HOST, in 2019. The new development is sandwiched between residential Northeast Park Hill, a community of mostly one-story brick ranch houses built after World War II, and an industrial part of the neighborhood that Mayor-elect Mike Johnston said would likely see an increase in development in the next couple of decades. Longtime community organizer Lamont Knowles said she expects the arrival of that development as well, and she's afraid the longtime black residents who have lived in nearby houses, some since the 60s, will be strategically priced out by skyrocketing property taxes as new development arrives. It's happened in cities nationwide, and she's watched it here, too, with the city doing too little to stop displacement, she said. In many cases, she feels the city has enabled it. City officials say the new income-restricted housing will keep low- and middle-income residents in the community. The new project will include a mix of home sizes, including a number of three- and four-bedroom units for larger families, plus a clubhouse with an educational wing dedicated to early childhood learning. Del West Development Corporation, the project's developer, dubbed it Holly 38. It will include 253 income-restricted homes. This development, when placed in service and opened for occupancy, will serve incomes from 30% of the area median income all the way up to 80% of the area median income, said Catherine Grosskup of the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, which used low-income housing credits to help fund the project. So this could be households with incomes at a $30,000 a year or less all the way up to households who have $80,000 a year or less. Some residents who receive vouchers from the Denver Housing Authority will pay no more than 30% of their income on rent, even if they're earning nothing, according to a release from the Department of Housing Stability. Don't let anyone tell you Denver is sleeping on affordable housing, said Hancock, as he departs well aware that Denver's cost of living has driven many longtime residents out. Hancock's pointing to the things his administration was able to do to try to keep people housed in town. Since July 2011, the Hancock administration has supported the building or preservation of over 10,000 affordable units in neighborhoods across the city, according to a statement from Host. A total of 1,611 affordable units that have received city financing are currently under construction at 16 sites throughout Denver. An additional 541 income-restricted units are in the planning stage. Mathematically speaking, that's a fraction of what's needed. Denver Housing Authority Executive Director David Nisavocia recently told Denverite the total number of income-restricted units Denver needs to catch up with demand is closer to 60,000 and growing as affordability becomes an increasing concern across the city. But every unit helps, and the city and developers are quick to celebrate them all. If you're going to end on a note, this is the note that you end on said District 8 Council Member Chris Herndon, who is also finishing his own final term. 
He celebrated Del West's communication with the neighbor and how they wanted to make sure this community was going to be for this community, and there were countless conversations they had. Del West came to the table, and that should be applauded, because a lot of builders don't engage community the way that Del West did. Too much of the community outreach had taken place outside the neighborhood and in South Park Hill, said Knowles, head of the East Denver Residence Council, while attending the groundbreaking. Knowles felt the developer could have done more to speak to people living across the street from the property under development. Neighbors were taken off guard when construction fences went up and bulldozing began, and only then, according to Knowles, did the developer really engage locally. Too often, when developers reach out to registered neighborhood organizations in the area, they focus on the Greater Park Hill Community Incorporated, which represents the area but is located in the wealthier, whiter Park Hill, south of Martin Luther King Boulevard, Knowles explained. Del West would have done better to speak more to the Northeast Park Hill Coalition, which solely represents the community where the Holly 38 is being built. Neighbors have expressed concerns about limited parking, the effects of construction on their quality of life, and a lack of engagement with the project. It's going to be a lot of disruption for the neighborhood, Knowles said, and that's the hard part. We've got a lot of seniors that live here. She was troubled by officials at the groundbreaking characterizing the surrounding community as poor, particularly since many people in the area have paid their homes in full. When I hear the word poor directed at folks who are homeowners, how are they poor if they own, she asked. Knowles is also concerned that the developers and investors are the only people getting wealthy from the development. She fears surrounding neighbors, who have been paying property taxes for decades, will see no return, and she plans to advocate for that to change. We're just going to monitor what they're doing, she said, and we also expect them to keep the community through the neighborhood organizations up to date on what they're doing to minimize any types of conflicts. She also wants to see more commercial activity in the area, and remembers fondly when Northeast Park Hill was a walkable, mixed-use community with vibrant commerce in Holly and Dahlia Squares and plenty of jobs from nearby Stapleton Airport. This neighborhood here was set up to fail years ago, and it didn't, she said. It went from a neighborhood to a community, and people have raised, raised generations of children here. We had neighborhood schools. We also had our own retail, commerce that has been taken out. And it concerns me, because when a neighborhood doesn't have their own commerce, then they're going to be targeted for extinction. Helen Bradshaw, a resident in the area, fought for the redevelopment of the nearby Park Hill Golf Course. She was disappointed that voters shot down the proposal that would have brought the neighborhood housing, commerce, space for a grocery store, and the city's fourth largest park, all to protect a private golf course. That's in the past now, and she sees possibility again in Holly 38. I believe that this is a start, she said, but it's not everything. We need resources and opportunity, not just housing in the neighborhood. Bradshaw sees Holly 38 as the start of what could have been created at the Park Hill Golf Course site, even if there is still no plan for what that project promised. Still, she has hope that changes are coming. We're getting community started, she said, looking out at the future home of Holly 38. We just started right here. Missing indigenous woman Christine Tail was found safely after her partner faced delays in reaching law enforcement by Desiree Matherin. 
Christine Tail, an indigenous woman affiliated with the Oglala Sioux tribe who went missing earlier this month, was found in the morning hours of Wednesday. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation announced days after her case gained national attention. Before the alert was issued, Tail was last seen by her partner, Tanya Lance, on June 14th at the intersection of Champa and 14th Street in the Central Business District. The pair had just arrived in Denver from Rapid City, South Dakota, to start a new life. Lance said she and Tail were discussing their future when Tail walked away, turned a corner, and disappeared. Lance's family contacted Denver police the following day and left several voicemails with the missing and exploited person unit, but days passed before they heard back. Nobody ever called us back. I was calling all morning and I was beginning to beg them not to transfer me, said Amanda, Lance's sister. I said, it's been three days. Time is important when somebody goes missing. Dispatch transferred the family members to the voicemail system for the missing and exploited person unit. After leaving the voicemail, they waited until an officer returned the call. DPD's Missing Persons Unit is a two-person team supervised by a lieutenant. DPD officials said due to large caseloads, an officer from the unit wasn't able to get back to the family immediately. Amanda said the last time she called that Saturday, begging not to be transferred back to the voicemail, she was told the report should have been filed in person something the family didn't know was required. DPD said in a statement that on June 17th, a family member called the Emergency Communication Center to report a missing person at 10.39 a.m., and an officer was dispatched at 10.58 a.m. and took the reported information. After officers spoke with family members, more issues came up. Since Tail is indigenous, a missing indigenous person alert should have been immediately activated according to state law. The MIPA system was established in late 2022, along with the accompanying Office of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives in Colorado, MMIR, as a way to help bring awareness and eventually solve crimes involving the indigenous community, which sees a disproportionately high rate of missing people and homicide cases compared to other racial or ethnic groups. According to the MMIR Bill SB 22150, law enforcement is supposed to identify CBI within eight hours of receiving a missing person report involving an adult and two hours for a missing child. The goal of the MMIR task force is to push these cases into the limelight, and the complimentary alert system was created to help stop the missing cases from going cold. Amanda works for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA, a nonprofit similar to the MMIR task force. She knew to reach out to the Colorado task force to get more eyes on Tail's case, especially with the police response she received. Once officers spoke with the family, Amanda said she expected them to contact the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. CBI is in charge of issuing the alert, but that didn't happen. DPD said that there was an internal misunderstanding after the report was taken as to whether CBI had already begun the MIPA alert, and the supervisor contacted CBI immediately after learning the alert had not been sent out. DPD added that they will be reviewing the case to ensure that in the future their response is timely and in accordance with state law. CBI issued the alert on June 18th, four days after Tail went missing. The alert was also wrong when it was issued. 
It listed an incorrect date of when Tail was last seen, and it included an old description of her. That information was corrected on June 20th. There was a lot of runaround, Amanda said. There was a lot of miscommunication between the departments. None of them knew what to do. It was really frustrating and a lot of wasted time. It happens a lot. There are departments like this that don't seem to care. On June 28th, Lance said she received a call from an officer stating that they'd been in contact with Tail and she was safe, though the officer said Tail was uninterested in reconnecting with Lance. Denverite has been unable to reach Tail for comment. DPT confirmed that Tail reached out to an outside law enforcement department to let officials know she was not missing, nor was she in need of assistance. Neither DPD or CBI would confirm to Denverite what law enforcement agency found Tail. After making contact, if the officer does not see any indication of harm or danger to the individual, or the person reported missing does not articulate any crime, then they are allowed to go on along their way and the case is closed, DPD said. This is the case for non-criminal missing persons cases involving adults. According to the CBI, 21 alerts have been issued as of June 29th, including Tails Alert. Of the other 19 alerts, one person was found dead and the others were found safely. On the day Tail was found, two additional alerts were issued and they are currently still active. Sherelle Lucinda Begay was last seen on June 13th in Denver. She's 26 years old, just over 5 feet tall, with brown hair and eyes. She's affiliated with the Navajo tribe, and she may be experiencing homelessness. Jordan Trofoya was last seen on June 19th, also in Denver. She's 14 years old, with black hair, and she's about 5 feet 6 inches tall. She's affiliated with the Northern Arapaho tribe. If either person is seen... CBI suggests calling 911 or DPD directly at 720-913-2000. DPD recommends family members call 911 or the number above if a loved one goes missing so that an officer is dispatched to take the report and notify an MEP supervisor detective. If the person is indigenous, then DPD will contact CBI. The following articles are from Westward. Killer of Fabulous Boogie Knots singer Jennifer Gelvin will be sentenced today by Benito L. Kelty. More than a year and a half has passed since Jennifer Gelvin, singer for the Fabulous Boogie Knots, and her friend, Catherine Pivota, were stabbed to death at Pivota's home by Matthew Madden, Pivota's estranged ex-husband. Today, June 30th, 38-year-old Madden will finally be sentenced in Denver District Court for killing Gelvin and Pivota. He pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in April. Gelvin was killed just a few weeks after her husband, Keith Rouse, the fabulous Boogie Knots trumpeter, died from a heart attack. The couple had two teenage children, daughter Jada and son Jazz. Gelvin had met Rouse before the fabulous Boogie Knots was founded in 1996. Gelvin was one of the original band members. Rouse joined in 2002. She was my best friend for 25 years, says Rocky Ramjet, who started the Denver Disco Band. It still affects us. That's never going to go away. The Fabulous Boogie Knots were a 10-member ensemble known for high energy and sometimes sci-fi-themed funk and rock and roll. The Boogie Knots were the house band for the Denver Nuggets and also played for the Denver Broncos. They released an album, 
fully functional in 2013. Gelvin was the finest performer I ever worked with, Ramjet says. She was on stage even when she wasn't on stage. She was born to do what she did, a born entertainer. Rouse was one of the best workers you could ask for, he adds, and made every day interesting. At around midnight on September 29, 2021, Gelvin was visiting Pavoda, a fourth-year doctoral student and English teacher at the University of Colorado Denver, at her home on the 2200 block of South Marion Street near the University of Denver. Madden had stopped living at the house that summer, according to Denver Police Department records. A couple living next door to Pavoda called the police to report what sounded like domestic violence. They said they'd heard somebody screaming, Get out! Get out! at around 12.09 a.m. before the house went silent. Then they heard someone crying. They thought it was a woman. It was Madden. When police arrived at the scene, they found Madden bloody and holding a knife, which he refused to drop. The police tased him, and he was transported to Denver Health, where he was treated for cuts on his neck, arm, and chest. The police found Gelvin and Pavoda in the backyard. Both had been stabbed to death. Police found Pavoda's two children, a newborn and a toddler, sleeping inside the house. Pavoda's family raised more than $48,000 for her two children through a GoFundMe page. The Gelvin family raised more than $113,000 through a GoFundMe page to support the singer's two children. Jada was 17 when her parents died. Jazz was 14 at the time. He now plays the drums, though he wasn't into drums when his parents were alive, says Ramjet. They've adjusted well. They're doing the best they can. The fabulous Boogie Knots performed live at Herman's Hideaway on June 16th. It was their first concert since a benefit for Jada and Jazz Rouse in December of 2021. The band was working on another album with the tentative title Too Funk to Drunction at the time of Gelvin and Rouse's deaths. Gelvin had suggested the title, and the band members are continuing to work on the album using bits of music that Gelvin left behind. We want to represent her the best we can, Ramjet says. It's going to happen, but it'll get done when it gets done. Madden is scheduled to be sentenced at 2.30 p.m. on June 30th. RTD is free in July and August. Here's what you need to know by Katie Cheshire. Starting July 1st, all RTD services are free until the end of August in an expansion of last year's Zero Fare for Better Air initiative, which was designed to encourage more people to use public transit and reduce ozone during a hot Colorado summer. The goal of the campaign is to help people build new commuting habits and reduce ground-level ozone during the highest ozone months, says Tina Jacquez, public relations manager for RTD. The free rides were made possible by a grant program through the Colorado Energy Office. The program was established by a 2022 bill sponsored by Senators Faith Winter and Nick Henrichen and Representatives Matt Gray and Jennifer Bacon. That successful measure appropriated funds to reimburse transit agencies for the revenue when fares were made free. In 2023, that same group of legislators, without Gray but with the addition of State Representative Stephanie Vigil, created more flexibility for such programs, allowing transit agencies to recover 100% of costs instead of the original 80% under the 2022 bill. The total cost of zero fare for better air 
when RTD offered free rides last August, was approximately $10.3 million. The state provided $7.2 million. This year, RTD contributed $2.2 million for setup costs, and the state will cover an estimated $15 million in lost fare revenue. That expanded contribution allowed RTD to extend the program into July. While it is designed to help eliminate tailpipe emissions of ozone precursors and decrease the number of ozone action alert days that Colorado experiences, there were 46 in 2022, the program also has a goal of encouraging more public transit. So much of this is how do we fill up those trains and buses and take better advantage of the system we already have, says Danny Katz, executive director of the Colorado Public Interest Research Group, a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. According to RTD's Zero Fare August Impact Analysis released in November, people definitely took advantage of the program last year. Overall ridership increased 22% from July to August and 36% from August 2021. Once people had to pay again in September, much of the increase in weekday ridership stayed, but commuter rail on Saturdays dropped with a 17.8% decline from the August numbers. According to RTD, that decline could have been the result of fewer sports events near light rail stops. With two months of free travel instead of one in 2023, ridership should increase more, Katz says, noting that in the first few weeks last August, people still weren't fully aware that they could use transit for free. More people are going to be looking for this because of last summer, he says. Coperg is part of a coalition of groups, mostly nonprofits, including Denver Streets Partnership, Green Latinos, and the Downtown Denver Partnership, that created a free transit Denver website to help the community engage. It offers suggestions on where public transit can take you around Metro Denver, including, including music venues and cultural attractions like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. We've been doing a lot to try to get major venues to put information on their websites, because that can be a real game changer if we have our sports stadiums, our concert halls, our theaters, all encouraging people to use transit to get to their events, Katz says. That's a big thing that I don't think we really nailed last year. In a survey conducted after the inaugural program, 45% of respondents said that they were more likely to use RTD services in the future because of zero fare for better air. Even so, RTD's November analysis found that it was difficult to quantify actual air quality impacts of the 2022 program. Today, RTD touts six benefits of the program on its website. Saving money, improving air quality, reducing stress, saving time, reducing traffic, and saving gas. It has a calculator that people can use to determine what their savings would be if they used free transit for two months instead of commuting. For those who need help planning trips, there's RTD Next Ride, a service with real-time transit information. Katz says he's excited to use RTD's bus service to Netherland, as well as organize other families in his neighborhood to take the 52 bus line to Old Town, Arvada for a night of fun. Last year, he used RTD to explore some of Aurora's restaurants. There's a lot of opportunity for families because... Too often, if you're riding transit as a family, you're paying multiple tickets, and that adds up, he says. This is a really great moment for families to hop on the weekends and get to some of these farmers' markets and go out to eat.
While some people worry about RTD safety, Katz says that the more people use public transit, the safer it is. According to RTD's analysis, security incidents did not increase last August. In fact, security incidents declined 17% year-over-year from 47 in August of 2021 to 39 in August of 2022, the report states. Vandalism and biohazard incidents did increase, but crime report data showed no major increase in drug-related complaints during Zero Fare for Better Air. Calls related to disturbances, narcotics, and trespassing in August of 2022 were all below the monthly average for the first seven months of 2022, according to the report. Employee opinion of the program was generally positive. Some participants noted an increase in non-destination individuals aboard transit vehicles, but most did not report significant impacts to operations as a result of the presence of these individuals, the report says. RTD just implemented a new code of conduct called Respect the Ride, partially to address people who get on buses or trains and ride them without going anywhere, often people experiencing homelessness who use transit as a way to escape the elements. The proposal for the new code of conduct originally included harsher crackdowns on non-destination riders, but the policy was changed because of civil rights concerns. The new Respect the Ride rules do place bans on people remaining on RTD property who aren't using its services who are engaging in harassment, a policy that gives more latitude to security to suspend people who violate the code of conduct was also put in place. As RTD works to become safer, people can enjoy the chance to explore more of Metro Denver for free. Last year highlighted all the reasons transit is important, Katz says. People don't ride it for one reason. Some people ride it because they don't want to be stuck in traffic, and it can be a much more pleasant experience to read a book, relax, and let somebody else do the driving for you. Others don't own a car. They don't have any other option, or their car broke down. There are a lot of benefits to a good transit system. E-bikes everywhere. Bike to Work Day highlights success of Denver's rebate program by Benjamin Neufeld. Today, June 28th, is Bike to Work Day, and Denver has a lot of new riders on the road, thanks to the city's e-bike rebate rebate program that started just over a year ago. In a city full of tough problems and even tougher solutions, Denver's e-bike rebate program has been a definite win. While it can't solve the climate crisis on its own, City officials, mobility data analysts, and new e-bike riders all say the program is having a real impact on reducing car travel in the city. According to Emily Gedeon, Director of Communications and Engagement for Denver's Department of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency, CASR, the program has put 5,974 e-bikes on the streets and counting. Based on results from a survey conducted last year, The average e-bike voucher redeemer replaced 3.4 car trips and traveled 21.6 miles weekly, says Gideon. Income-qualified residents made more trips per week and replaced over 40% more miles of car trips each week. According to a 2022 report, e-bikes from Denver's program displace 4.1 million vehicle miles, eliminate 1,447 tons of greenhouse gas emissions every year, 
and saved Denver residents $1 million in fuel and maintenance costs. Speaking at a CASR-hosted rally for new e-bike riders at Sculpture Park on June 10th, Grace Rink, the chief climate officer for the city and county of Denver and executive director of CASR, said e-bike riders are collectively replacing over 100,000 car miles per week. Rink added that other cities throughout the country have begun creating e-bike rebate programs because of the success of Denver's. We have received calls from over 50 cities that want to do the exact same thing, she said. We truly are creating a transportation revolution. It's definitely spreading around the state. The Colorado Energy Office recently announced a statewide e-bike rebate program that will launch in August. It will offer $500 vouchers and $1,100 vouchers to income-qualified individuals. And Boulder just announced its own e-bike rebate program. Beginning at 9 a.m. on July 6th, Boulder residents can apply for $300 regular e-bike vouchers or $500 e-cargo bike vouchers with $1,200 and $1,400 income-qualified vouchers. 200 vouchers total are available in the first application round. Round two will start in September. History shows that those 200 vouchers will be gone fast. Denver first announced its program on April 22, 2022. By May 11th, CASR had to stop accepting voucher applications because it had already received 3,250. Denver has had several more rounds of rebates since then, including three so far this year. Each time, the available vouchers have been snatched up within minutes. The last round took place on May 30th. Applications opened at 11 a.m. and were gone by 11.06. Denver resident Margot Ryan put in her application the moment a Denver rebate round started on January 31st. My husband and I each had alarms, she recalls. The rebate was a significant factor for us, says Ryan. I don't know that we would necessarily have gotten an e-bike without the rebate. Her voucher arrived in early February, and she got her e-bike soon after. She has used it to replace many car trips, including all kinds of errands, and even taking her kids to school. Ryan and her family live in Baker, but her son plays rugby at North High School and practices there at 5 p.m. on weekdays. Trying to get from Baker to North at 5 p.m. is horrible by car, it's deadly, says Ryan. It actually takes us the same amount of time to e-bike, but it's a really lovely trip. According to an e-bike program analysis released on March 7th, 29% of Denver e-bike redeemers who completed the program survey indicated they were new to riding. That analysis survey was done by Ride Report, a company that collects bike and e-bike mobility data, as well as the City of Denver and a few other organizations. Denver's standard e-bike rebate program offers a $300 voucher and $500 voucher for regular e-bikes and cargo e-bikes, respectively. Income-qualified rebates go up to $1,200 and $1,400. When the program was launched, standard rebates were $400 with a $500 bonus for those looking to get an e-cargo bike. CASR's Gideon notes that $5.6 million has been spent on the rebate program so far, with that money coming from the city's Climate Protection Fund. The CPF raises $40 million annually from a 0.25% sales tax passed in Denver in 2020. 
This morning, Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure will host a breakfast station in front of the Denver and City County building to commemorate Bike to Work Day. Mayor Michael Hancock will be on hand, riding around on an e-bike. The event will also celebrate the city's construction of 140 miles of new bike lanes since 2018, for a total of 436 miles of bikeways throughout the city. Says DOTI Marketing and Communications,